Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Weekday Wednesday, Tucson, Arizona's number one online radio podcast about all things medical cannabis. Your host, Bellstar. And the Cannabis Kid. Our show features news, interviews, and all the latest information about anything and everything medical cannabis related in Tucson, Arizona, and, and the, the world, world at large. We'd love to hear from you. Please give us a call live at 646-915-8421. You can like us on Facebook, follow us on all social media, or email thctucson at gmail.com. We'd like to thank Tumbleweed's Health Center and Studio C, along with our many sponsors for hosting our show every week. With the lowest price certifications in town, you'll find hemp products, accessories, and all things related to medical cannabis education. Visit Tumbleweed's Health Center at 4826 East Broadway Boulevard or online at Center.com. And remember, be smart, be safe, and educate. educate. Welcome to Weed Day Wednesday, everybody. Yay, I'm clapping. I'm clapping for myself. (laughs) Or clapping by myself. Or (laughs) clapping for you. Welcome to Weed Day Wednesday, folks. For the best day, it's March 10th. I can't even believe it's March 10th already. That's freaking crazy. Crazy. Lots going on in the world. Um, This show... um, I've got um, I got a sick dragon. Um, yeah, he's not feeling good. In fact, he was real sick this morning. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna just say some thanks and throw on some Doug Fine, and you guys can all get educated about him for a while. All right, um, there you go. Thanks to Tumbleweeds Health Center at 4826 East Broadway Boulevard. Come down and get certified Monday through Saturday now. Woo-hoo. And if you're wondering what conditions qualify you for a cannabis card, well, uh, one moment. Let's see. Get on over to TumbleweedHealthCenter.com, and I'll tell you. Um, PTSD, cancer, glaucoma, AIDS, chronic pain, severe nausea, seizures, including epilepsy, HIV, hep C, ALS, Crohn's disease, agitation of Alzheimer's, uh, cachexia or westing, uh, wasting syndrome? Westing. <laughs> I have a Westing syndrome. <laughs> I like to be in Westerns. And you're also eligible for a card if you're being treated for something that causes any of those things. Uh, get certified 324 if you don't have records, 274 if you do, 199 if you're on food stamps. Yeah. Uh, we do. Uh, house call. If you don't want to leave your house, we have telemedicine, and we also do patients under 18. And don't worry, kids. For those 18 to 21, we're working on a left-out discount for you guys. Kind of got screwed in this Still use your medical cannabis. So, if you're 18 or over, in between 18 and 21, you can't get to your rec weed. You can come get to your medical weed. So that's good. Um, all right, let's see here. So, um, yeah, Tumbleweed Health Center. 
Are chronic conditions holding you back from a happy, healthy life? Get on the right track with Tumbleweeds Health Center. Our CBD products are formulated to fit your healthy lifestyle. I would definitely say that CBD has changed my life. I mean, I don't worry about my dog anymore, and I don't worry about sleeping anymore. Tumbleweeds Health Center, voted number one health center in Tucson, has created a proprietary number of CBD blends, each designed to promote health and well-being. Let Tumbleweeds Health Center show you how CBD products might help you improve your life the natural way. That's right. You can give us a call, <clears throat> 520-838-4430. You can email thctucson at gmail.com. Uh, just come on down, 4826 East Broadway Boulevard. And again, com. All right, Reggae Ryan, welcome to the show. What's going on in Grand Island? I hope you guys are all feeling better. I um, hope the world's feeling better. I know there are three or four states that have just said, to heck with the masks, we're going to go back to regular life, and we will see how they do. I know some of my besties are getting the shots, and someone's not feeling so well today, um, so I hope you feel better soon, seriously. This, this stuff scares me. Um, yeah, I don't like shots. I don't do shots. Woo! My, my arm's just, my arm's full. And you can't, you can't get my blood. You're not giving me a shot. Ah. Anyway, um, but be careful out there. Whatever you do, whoever you're open. Oh, and just speaking of being open and not, uh, did you all know that Paradise Valley um, is planning on discussing uh, an ordinance to ban recreational marijuana? So did Benson. What the heck? It's still on the table. There's a fight in April. Seriously, guys? What? What's to decide? Just do it and make your billion zillion dollars. Oh, and heal people, by the way. <laughs> like, that's the last thing you got to do, right? Oh, by the way, you're healing people. Ooh. All right, speaking of healing people, I have a go dragon to look at right now. We are going to put on some Doug Fine. We love Doug. And we are continuing to read his book, uh, American Hemp Farmer. Adventures and Misadventures in the Cannabis Trade. So let's uh, let's see. We've got two hours and 52 minutes left. Wow, we're jamming on this. And we're on chapter, um, I think we're in chapter 14. Oh, track 15 of 21. Maybe that's chapter 14, I think. So here we go. We're going to continue and see what's happening. That can handle all, take okay. three seasons before you dial in your fiber yield and quality protocol. Okay, there you go. Take three seasons before you dial everything in. You ready? Doug Pine, let's turn him up here. Let's get him over here. And check out DougPine.com. You can also check out on our radio section in the news section, you can vote for Doug's new book. Woohoo, we did. The herd operation aren't a deal breaker for a coalition of independent hemp farmers. Here we go. Herd is herd, pretty much, Flaherty said. But when it comes to bast fiber, input quality is critical. And time. It can take three seasons before you dial in your fiber yield and quality protocol and before you fully learn your decortication equipment. So our putative fiber cooperative might be wise to invest in a facility and equipment that can handle all sides of the stock, but start with herd. Become pros at that part of the plant. At the same time, this shrewd co-op has members working to build mutually beneficial relationships on the retail side. Obvious choices are hardware, livestock, and home supply outlets. While developing a reputation for providing something that is new, interesting, regional, and of good quality. Nebraska Hemp Fiber Co-op, for instance, 
is a terrific building material brand. If the co-op's members also find they can market the lower quality bass for the local university's battery research, a paper pulping endeavor, or as spill cleanup material, that's just more revenue for the co-op. Sunstrand even has customers who use the residual hemp fiber dust that the company's filters catch for compost. Pure Hemp Technology, a Fort Lupton, Colorado fiber processing company, works on multiple streams for its fiber output. Its factory floor reminds me of the golden age of analog industry, loud machinery turning biomass into everything from paper towels to lignin-derived sugars. The next obvious question is the cost of a professional-grade processing facility that can handle both bast and herd. In the fiber world, said fiber entrepreneur Ryan Dougherty, president of Virginia-based Hemp Ventures, this includes decortication equipment for separating herd from bast, but also a range of other processing machinery should the facility aim to be turnkey, meaning it's able to process both market-ready herd and bast products. When I surveyed materials engineers in the hemp sphere, the price of a high-end medium-scale processing facility made by established European agricultural processing companies Van Dommel or La Roche ranged from eight to $10 million. On the opposite end of the spectrum, a quick and dirty way to get at the herd only if you don't care too much about uniformity on the herd side or the bass for anything but pulp or batteries is a hammer mill. Professional models start in the $10,000 range and really hardcore bad boys that can handle hemp strength run about $40,000, not counting facilities and other costs such as baling equipment, storage, and bagging machinery. But for a moderately priced professional facility that can process a farming community's fiber production pretty much 24-7, Flaherty reps a more modular decortication system from a British but for true industrial scale processing of both bast and herd, he said, it can run several million more when you figure in equipment, facilities, and consulting expertise. This facility, which can process up to two tons of hemp fiber per hour, would be in reach of an independent farmer cooperative, especially if a member knows how to write grant applications to cover initial fixed costs. But even then, Flaherty told me, there is a knowledge base required in the field, especially right after harvest, when you're already rushing your seed to be cleaned and dried. On the farm, you better understand redding, he said. Redding, as we discussed a bit in Hempbound, is the ancient art of nurturing a fieldside fungal process in the weeks following the fiber's harvest. Redding seasons the fiber and loosens the lignin glue that fuses the bast and herd components of the hemp stalk. That makes decortication much easier. Redding is not super complicated. You have to turn the fiber windrows at appropriate intervals or very different from the mode you see in medieval French sketches of hemp harvesting. But you have to get it right. When it comes to fiber processing, Flaherty said, junk in is junk out. That means knowing when the fiber is just the right golden gray color, but not too yellow gold. Not too wet, not too dry, and ready for the decorticator. You learn how to feel when the fiber is ready to leave the field, Flaherty said. You can pinch it and feel the fiber and the inner core when it's ready, Ball told me. We want the moisture at 14% or less before baling. I tell you, I learn something about fiber every time I head into the field. 
You and me both, brother. On the cultivation side, if you're growing for fiber, plant tight 20 or 30 pounds of seed per acre. This is for strong mental health upon harvesting and redding. Thinner stalks are easier to harvest. If you want to give a fiber guy like Shane Ball heart trouble, show him a picture of the 15-foot monsters the University of Hawaii project grew in 2018. Beautiful plants, and I love taking pictures looking like a hobbit next to them, but difficult to bring down with anything short of artillery. Shane, 48, took a physical step back as if punched in the stomach when I proudly shoved my phone in front of his face and said, look, a project I'm working on is growing a fiber cultivar. Consistency is a factor as well. Let's say your regional farmer co-op plans on investing in a hammer mill and your product is hempcrete building feedstock that you'll supply to your region's hardware stores. Some hempcrete builders want herd that sports consistent dimensions and is up to industry standards for cleanliness. Colorado-based hemp builder John Patterson of Tiny Hemp Houses said that though each structure's needs are distinct, he likes to work with herd not exceeding one inch in length for structures smaller for plaster. The diameter is also important, he told me. It should be split like firewood down to one-eighth inch or smaller. Not nuclear physics, but there's more to it than simply bailing your fiber at harvest, hauling it to your facility, and shredding it in your hammer mill. Some builders tell me they actually want some bass fiber left in with the herd for strengthening the building feedstock. Others tell me they like to use herd churned up to very fine dimensions, almost a powder. So even with simple herd apps, your processing enterprise is going to need to gain professional expertise quickly. Which is to say, I see the cautionary point made by the pros in the early fiber world who understand about industrial specs and commodities markets. It can seem a little naive to the guys with materials engineering degrees to envision a bunch of New Mexico or Minnesota farmers in overalls competing in the big-time fiber market. I suggest we independent entrepreneurs take that as a challenge. And now for the million-acre question, let's say you get a bunch of your region's farmers together, form a fiber cooperative, and wrangle the initial costs for your facility. Just how many farmed hemp acres does it take to feed a fiber facility? Depends on its capacity. Flaherty and I did some napkin math together in his booth at a Texas conference in 2019. We were surrounded by hemp surfboards, hemp plateware, and some spherical thermoplastic compounds he's designing for the DIY community. He even had a line of hemp composite guitar amplifier dials. Icing on the cake, our napkin math was done on the back of my hemp business card made by Colorado's Tree Free Hemp Company. Here's what we came up with. Let's say the TAFM decorticator facility can process a ton of mixed hemp fiber an hour. This is conservative, Flaherty said. Or 24 tons per day, or 6,264 tons per 261-day working year. If a hemp field produces two tons of dry mixed fiber per acre, also conservative, that means one facility would require 3,132 acres to run 24-7 during every workday. That's not a small number, but it's doable. Montana farmers planted 22,000 acres in 2018, according to Vote Hemp. See how we're inching toward those 234.7 million target acres? 
One economic reality we have to our advantage is that fiber has a limited range from farm to facility. Conventional wisdom, meaning pretty much everyone you talk to the world over who processes fiber, says that the sheer amount of biomass involved in a commercial level operation generally necessitates cultivation within 50 to 200 miles of a facility. I think that might change when demand for value-added biomaterials products matures and when a cooperative is able to handle its own harvest deliveries. But for now, it means that if you and your hemp colleagues launch a fiber enterprise in your region, you will probably be the first ones. Chapter 14, Cleaning Up with Plants. If this material that never wears out went on the market, it'd destroy the whole economy. Major Nelson to Jeannie. I dream of Jeannie. Oh, how easy our semi-nomadic ancestors had it with hemp. No composite strength test or micron measurements. Just food and seed. Shelter and clothing, fiber. And flour for get-togethers. You know, tri-cropping. But if you can get a professional-scale fiber project off the ground, bless you. For what? For the carbon sequestration you're facilitating, given the vast acreage necessary for a viable operation. You might even call your herd product carbon sink hemp. In addition to livestock bedding and construction, a hemp fiber sector that's about to explode is phytoremediation, soil building. Since both construction and phytoremediation are concerned with cleaning up past messes, cement plants alone contribute 5% of worldwide carbon dioxide emissions, and at least one-third of the Earth's soil needs some form of healing. Here are a few more things to know about both. Carbon-negative living. Though we've been calling it hempcrete, a term conjuring images of heavy blocks, Hemp building is already proving to be extremely varied. Herd is being used for structural building, for insulation, paneling, and flooring. I've even seen engineers at Canada's Composites Innovation Center making a functional sound barrier wall out of it. When we speak of hempcrete, it's shorthand for hemp herd mixed with lime or another binder and water. But we might see other modes of utilizing hemp for building, ranging from hemp-based spray insulation to digitally printed structures. In these cases, a key question to address is, what are the binders and sealants? The goal, remember, is not to be scared of the chemical bath step in any industrial process. The early modern hempcrete structures I've explored have all been highly functional they can be virtually fireproof, blowtorching hempcrete videos are all over the net, and great for folks with chemical allergies. In Larimer County, Colorado, Melissa and Josh Rabe built, I mean personally built, a 1,500-square-foot hempcrete cabin at 6,200 feet elevation that I entered in a freezing rain in 2015. Inside, with no fire, it was toasty. Part of that has to do with their attention to detail. There were no door frame gaps, for instance. A lot of the R value in any structure can depend on the quality of the build, but when done right, hemp building not only breathes, it regulates heat very well besides. 
the raves even stuccoed the cabin's interior with hemp-cased plaster. Natural building with hemp is also much less energy intensive during the actual build than concrete, drywall, and stick frame building. Hempcrete doesn't require the intense mixing heat that concrete does, for instance. And if the hemp feedstock is grown regionally, transportation energy use is much lower than drywall and lumber shipped across an ocean. Hemp-built structures even continue working on climate change after you move in. What is happening as the lime and hemp herd fuse is they are capturing carbon, said Patterson of tiny hemp houses. If anything, Patterson explained, your walls are hardening as the herd in conjunction with its hydrolyzed lime sequesters carbon. The hempcrete industry was embryonic when I wrote Hempbound in 2013. There were perhaps a dozen hemp homes in North America. Today, there is probably a hemp building specialist in your state. Indeed, last month, I got cleaned out in a poker game by two-time NBA Hall of Famer Don Nelson at a gaming table set on a hemp floor in his hempcrete house in Hawaii. It's lovely that hemp herd is in demand for building. That justifies investing in these expensive processing facilities, but it's even better that it works. I knew hemp building was for real the moment my sons and I made a hempcrete ball in about 10 minutes. We used hemp we grew in Vermont and lime sourced regionally. For three years, that ball has traveled with me in no special packaging to nine states, three countries, and four tropical islands. Now, anytime I see someone building a green business storefront with press board, I think, what other species
problems? I wanted this to be true, especially for a co-op. This was the model I yearned to see replicated in hemp-growing communities all over the world. Indeed, I'd been trying for several years to launch one in multiple states. I'd forgotten that the hardest part of this enterprise would be the human side, that cultivating people would prove more difficult than cultivating and marketing top-shelf hemp, forming a co-op, or becoming fiscally buoyant. Optimism was my dominant state of mind as I drove north toward the plump poor sign logo on the FPS entrance sign. Some unnamed social crisis notwithstanding, I missed my mentors and I wanted to see how, if at all, the cooperative had migrated in practice, principles, or spirit as it was apparently on the rise. When she'd apprised me of the promising financial developments at that conference breakfast, Eugenia had also told me that the co-op was on the verge of expanding almost on schedule to its phase two plan of adding a producer co-op to the existing worker co-op. The worker co-op to do farming efficiency, breeding, product development, she told me, basically to be a think tank. The goal being enrichment of the producer co-op composed of hemp farmers. As a result of this remarkable recent progress, I thought I'd be asking questions about marketing, tax issues, and growth plans for membership and acreage on this visit. I wanted to be bored by the mundanity of success. Instead, I learned that the success of a co-op is much less about its operations than its personalities. Loving these people like kin, news of FPS unrest, though lurking below my optimism, was jolting. In fact, it's still a bit painful to recount the turmoil I witnessed over the next two days. I mention this for two reasons. First, because the FPS, six months later as this book is going to production, lives to fight another day, which means the way its members handled a court crisis provides a model for how other co-ops might address social engineering issues. Second, because I believe this co-op's members deserve some kind of integrity and transparency award. On this most recent visit, they were aware I was researching a book chapter about the functioning of a real-world hemp co-op. They knew I was going to report what I saw. When she and Bill decided to form a co-op, Eugenia was aware that managing people would be the hardest job. In fact, it was her job from the start. The daughter of South American engineers came in with some essential perspective. The awareness that the world's most successful co-ops have identified the people problem and learned to address it as a top priority. The Mondragon cooperatives of the Basque region of Spain have recognized that it is a career track position to be the social coordinator, she told me four years ago. This is the person who checks in with every member in her section every day, every manager, every intern, every engineer, every custodian. These guys have $28 billion in assets and still there's a social coordinator for every eight people. So we decided to replicate that. As you know, I'm not, indeed I did. Eugenia was the chief cat herder, but the FPS's big problems arose four years later when Eugenia realized she was also one of the cats. 
Ikenia met me at the camper as usual as I pulled in when the moon was high in the sky that March evening. What struck me as unusual was that despite the relatively early hour, she took my elbow and walked me away from the farmhouse. We headed straight to the main FPS greenhouse for a private chat before I even encountered the rest of the crew. As we pulled back two greenhouse flaps, gaining 30 degrees within three steps, she said, I knew it was going to be this way. I just didn't realize how bad it could get so quickly. How bad what could get? The moisture in the greenhouse air was itself a second wall through which we walked like wizards at a train station. The people problem, she said, sitting us down at a picnic table surrounded by plants of all sizes. Bill, I said, wiping my brow. I mean Bill, myself, Yami, Gavin, and all the volunteers, she said. I noted that she had listed nearly everyone who was or ever had been a member of the co-op. But then, after a significant pause, she added, mostly it's about Bill and me, having crossed a line where we're having difficulty working together. Then she took a breath. That social coordinator's job in the Mondragon model is to ask personal questions like, what's really going on with you and who's pissing you off? as well as business questions like, what could be done better on your shift, and do you know about the big co-op board boat coming up? There have been studies about this. It's an essential co-op survival tool. They must be doing something right over in Basque country. The 63-year-old Mondragon co-op group has 74,000 members working at 257 companies. They do everything from making bicycles to offering engineering training. Equally important, 70% of the co-op members vote in co-op elections. That's 15% higher than voting rates in U.S. presidential elections. The model has been replicated all over Latin America, Eugenia continued. That's where I learned about it. It's all about the team feeling empowered. It seemed so sensible, so natural. I immediately started trying to work out where else the social director appears in nature. Is there a gorilla, Eugenia? Possibly. And cattle folks tell me there's a sort of ante for the herd, making sure someone's on lookout and all the calves accounted for. Regardless, I had little doubt she was right about the importance of the position. I don't speak lightly in my advice on this front these days, because I felt the pain of crossed wires and mixed expectations within an entrepreneurial group. Trust is one thing, and essential, but it's just one building block for a successful working group. Two or three people might have opinions about what amounts to a full work week, for instance, or the big one, how long you all might have to work before getting well paid. No one I've met is immune. When things have gone well on any project of which I've been part, whether as entrepreneur, consultant, or researcher, it's because every member of the team was jamming in sync. Everyone stepped up without having to be asked, knowing that others would often do the same. When the project hit bumps, it was usually because there were communication issues. Okay, I got it. A co-op is wise to have a social director position right from launch. Non-discussed expectations, man, what an enterprise killer. But I didn't fully grok what the new issue was for the FPS. When there's a difficult, challenging personality, and everyone recognized that Bill can be a difficult personality, 
the social issues might come to a head sooner, but they always do. That's because everyone's difficult. It's why I live 40 miles from the nearest town surrounded by attack goats. <laughs> I get all that, I said to Eugenia at the picnic table. What? There you go. And that's it, herding cats. Everyone's difficult. But I know that Doug Fine loves also everyone. That's for sure. We know we can count on Dougie Fresh for the love. So let's see, get back over here to where we wanted to go with our yeah, yeah. We will definitely do that over. Um, for the show, um, there it is. Uh-oh. We're, okay, I don't need to listen to the music, but um, hopefully you guys can hear it. I have no idea what's going on with the show again. Um <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks for tuning in to Wednesday, Wednesday, guys. I guess I should watch to see where this little ditty is going down the way. Um, as always, be smart, be safe, and educate, and uh, we'll have some guests on. And, oh, vote for us. Go to tumbleweedhealthcenter.com and vote for us. It's on the top of every page, and uh, we will see you very soon. Happy Wednesday, Wednesday, everybody.